Welcome to Life on Mars, a podcast about technology, entrepreneurship, and innovation. You will listen to stories of the best founders, inventors, experts, and celebrities from all around the galaxy. Howdy, everybody. Alex from Mars Lease here. Welcome to another episode of Life on Mars. I hope that you're having an excellent summer so far. And in this occasion, we'll be bringing back a conversation we hosted at Startup Grind Barcelona in early 2017, with who at the time had just quit his role of CTO CIO at Zynga, the gaming company. We're talking about Dorian Carroll, good friend of our company. You have listened to him in a previous episode of the English edition of Life on Mars already. But in that occasion, we spoke about how to find developers, how to hire developers for your scale-up, how to find a technical co-founder or a CTO if you're a startup and you are in need of this kind of profile because investors require that or because you have no technical knowledge, you're not as tech-savvy as a lot of CEOs out there, and therefore you require more technical knowledge. How to create careers for developers as well, how to manage the expectations or balance between product and technology, how to test new technologies in the company, how to manage the expectations of developers who want to play always with the shiniest thing in the market, but which might not well be the best technological choice for your tech stack, right? This and much more you're going to find in this conversation. However, be aware that the audio for this interview is not really good. It's far from perfect, not up to nowadays standards for podcast audio quality. However, the quality of the insight and the conversation, I think it deserves more recognition because many, many, many pieces of advice from things that we covered that day, I still recommend to people to follow. I still use them myself uh, well over four and a half years today, right? So if you're interested in listening to this episode and you definitely can put up with it, with this audio quality or lack thereof, Without further ado, I'll let you enjoy this episode. Let's jump right into it. Um, well, thank you. Thank you for joining us and welcome to Start Ryan. How many times have you been welcomed as a rock star? Oh, never. 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 I, I was on TV in Japan. <laughs> But uh, not as a rock star, as a sailor. Okay. Uh, interestingly enough, he's one of these very few developers who actually has got social skills. <laughs> he's got the bachelor in uh, in theater. Can you explain a little bit about that? Yeah. So I I really love theater. I love being on stage. I like speaking. Uh, I had an opportunity uh, going to college. I went to a small technical school called called Harvey Mudd College in California, in Southern California. And it, Harvey Mudd is one of five colleges, a little bit like uh, Cambridge or Oxford. We have different colleges that form the whole university. And at Harvey Mudd, I spent my first part, my first year in you know, math and computer science. I had to take chemistry and physics and all of the basic classes. And in your second year, you have to take physical chemistry. And the courses get harder and harder. And I was actually only interested in math and computer science. But a friend of mine was at one of the other colleges, Pittsburgh, and he went into an audition uh, for uh, a show that was being put on at the colleges. And he asked me just to come along, just you know, support me. So I'm sitting there, he's up on stage auditioning. There are 20 or 30 people coming up on stage and sitting down again. And at the end, the director 
looks out and says, who's that guy? My friend Justin says, oh, that's my friend Dorian. Uh, like, well, does he act? It's like, well, you know, he's over in the math department. But it's like, get him up here. So I, I get up on stage, and the director actually cast my friend Justin and me opposite each other. And that was my first play in college. And I said, I gotta do a lot more of this. So I actually changed over to Pitzer College, which had a much more open uh, set of requirements to graduate. And I continued, I double majored in math, computer science, and theater, and just because I never get enough, I then did a, a major in acting with a minor in lighting design. And I think I spent seven days a week, seven to eight hours a day in the math, computer science lab at Harvey Mudd, and then seven to eight hours a day, seven days a week in the theater department uh, at Pitzer and then Pomona. And I actually, that's my degree, it's actually Sleep when you're dead, right? Yeah, well, yeah, they just like, keep going, keep doing things, and keep trying new things. Uh, it was a lot of fun. I found that I only had one class that there was any overlap at all. That was in lighting design. We were just, this is a long time ago, we were just starting to use computerized lighting. So instead of everything just being switches and pulleys and all of that, we could actually start to program it. But that was it, one class where there was a little bit of Before we go a little bit into your, uh, your story, can you tell the story behind that picture? <laughs> Where was taken? Why? Uh, all right, What so happened? you can't see everything in this picture. Uh, I'm sitting in bed. Uh, <laughs> the blankets are a little ruffled. Uh, this is my fiance, Liz. And uh, she took the picture. Those are her glasses. I thought it would be funny to put the glasses on. And so I, I put them on. It's very sexy. She thought it would be funny to... Uh, take a picture. And then days later, I came across the picture. Several beers had probably been consumed, and I decided to make that my LinkedIn profile picture. Yeah. <laughs> Saying, fuck it, if that's what people, if they're going to judge me on that picture and say they don't want to talk to me, I'm okay with that. Right. <laughs> It's, uh, yeah, actually, a couple of people in the audience tonight asked me, like, is he a porn star? <laughs> like, no, no. Not a porn star. Okay. He doesn't make any Income from that. Okay, okay. It's all a side thing, right? So basically I wanted to ask you, first of all, what do you think of the pitches? Do you find any relevant uh, or interesting project? Because he's here, he's been in Berlin for a week, in Paris for a week, in Barcelona for a week, trying to meet young companies that he actually wants to advise, counsel and mentor. Actually, before you even go there, I just want to say this is awesome to have an opportunity to ideally share some ideas, some experiences, some things that I've done mistakes I've made, lessons I've learned, so that you can make new mistakes, don't make the same mistakes I made. Uh, we were in Berlin, I talked to about 30 people, I actually gave a talk on uh, data science and sort of stories from uh, the database. And I think there were 30 people in the room, there were only four women. And I didn't, and it's just everywhere I go, I want to see it. So I'm so thrilled to see so many women in the audience. Keep going, keep pushing. than men, so there should be more women in tech than men in tech, so keep it up. If you need my help, if I can help on that, if you're a man and you want to help women in tech, if you're a woman and you want to help men in tech, I'm here to help. Uh, the, the pitches are really interesting. I, I don't know how I could help anybody in any of those specifically, but if uh, later on we're talking, I, I can usually come up with ideas. Sure, the way I want to do it, since this is a special Star Friday event, normally the 
the interview goes up to almost an hour. I think I will keep it a little bit shorter tonight and we'll open up to more Q&A because I think there will be more interesting questions than what I do normally. My questions are pretty fucking boring. So let's move to, uh, let's move to the next topic. I actually wanted to, to you to share some of the false myths that you have encountered running as a CTO in companies like Postini, Technorati, or, um, or Singa. What are some of these myths that you say, like, this is really wrong? Well, I've worked in organizations with cultures that are really good, others that are really bad. Uh, I'm a strong believer in understanding your vision and your mission. As a business, why do you exist? Why is it important? How can you get people excited about what you're doing? And every company has the big poster on the wall, what are our values, what are our principles, what is our mission? Very few companies actually live and I would just say, if you find yourself creating a company where you're not even being true to your own mission, change. Either change the mission or change and actually follow it. If you're working for a company and nobody's following the mission, quit. <laughs> I just, I wouldn't I would stick around. Um, at Oracle, or there was an, an article that came out in uh, uh, Upside was the magazine. So this is sort of before the internet, before .com or any of that. Uh, there was an article in Upside Magazine that talked about, at Oracle, you never have to worry about anybody sneaking up behind you and stabbing you in the back. Because they'll just walk right up to you and stab you in the chest. <laughs> it, oh, yes, it was in the chest. <laughs> it, it's, it, was very, uh, it was very brutal. It's a very sales-driven culture. Larry Ellison is a you know, preeminent salesman. It's all about revenue, revenue, revenue. You can work in those cultures, you can make a lot of money, you can be very successful. I personally don't find that very satisfying. I spent three years at Oracle, I learned a ton. I learned a lot about databases, about management, about technology. Uh, I, I like to tell people, I feel very proud of it when I quit. They replaced me with three people at my salary. So it, it, took, it took a lot to do what I did. And it was, I'm so glad I got out of there. Now, I worked for Tom Siebel, then later created Siebel Systems and CRM apps, sold that back to Oracle years later. After Tom Siebel, I worked for Mark Benioff. Uh, Mark Benioff is the CEO of Salesforce, so he didn't get acquired again. I worked for Craig Conway. Craig Conway was at PeopleSoft, which was later acquired by Oracle. All of those people are driven by money. There's nothing wrong with being driven by money, but I personally want to actually help and do things that make a difference in people's lives that can hopefully help them make the money they need, but pass it on. This idea of being able to advise and really pay it forward really resonates with me. So I would encourage all of you to take advantage of the people sitting next to you, the people sitting in this room, connect people. I think there is an aspect of secrecy, privacy, people don't want to share their ideas. And I think, in fact, so often when we share our ideas, it does two things. It forces us to actually be able to articulate our idea, and it gives us a chance to share that idea and hopefully either get validation. Somebody says, oh, that is a really great idea. It's like, I knew it was a great idea, but I'm glad to hear somebody else thinks it's a great idea. <laughs> yeah, or it's, no, have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? You know, I have a friend. You should talk to her, and she can help you do something else. I've only been, I stopped working four months ago, so it hasn't been that long. And people have been introducing me to people. That's why I got to introduce to Alex. And it's fantastic. I would say 
the myth of sort of keeping things to yourself and not sharing, sure, proprietary algorithms, intellectual property, a lot of that stuff you probably don't want to share too broadly, but try to get exposure. I think the fact that you're all here suggests that's the kind of people you are, so encourage others to participate. Yeah, actually, one of the things we were covering before in our conversations like earlier in the day is that some companies are really looking for growth and growth and growth at whatever cost, right? Um, is that a problem, you see? I mean, you were at Zynga, they were growing like nonstop. Yeah, so uh, I started at Zynga in 2009. There were about 280 employees. Two years later, there were 3,800 employees. So, massive growth. The theory was, we figured out a formula on how to create successful games on Facebook. Facebook was growing. It was actually a very interesting symbiotic relationship. There were massive increases in Facebook accounts being created because people wanted to play Mafia Wars or they wanted to play Farmville, and that's where they could play with their friends. So they weren't actually creating Facebook accounts to use Facebook. They were creating Facebook accounts to play our games. But then there was also this very large Facebook audience that yeah, we probably sent too many push notifications. <laughs> Other kinds of notifications. I love them all. My dog is spam. Sorry. Uh, we, we actually uh, changed Facebook uh, in many cases, not necessarily for the better, but in many cases actually for the better. Um, again, one of those things that is it's interesting. You think about a company as big as Facebook, and I, I take maybe it's a little bit of sadistic pride, but there were two separate occasions where we did something on Mafia Wars and we broke Facebook. So <laughs> Facebook was down because of something we did. And it felt pretty amazing to have that kind of power. I wouldn't recommend doing that, but how many people can say they took Facebook down? Um, and it was really only because one part of our infrastructure failed. So we had a large uh, in-memory cache of your Facebook friends and one of those servers went down and so the code was written to go fetch, go talk to Facebook Live. But there were so many people playing the game, Facebook wasn't ready for that much uh, live traffic. Uh, they told us not to do that. We actually were able to then use that as an impetus for something we call a fat pain. So Facebook, one of the things is everybody's adding friends, subtracting friends, how, what your permissions are. So we would query Facebook to grab all of those details, and at some point they're saying, you're just querying us too much, stop. They say, well, if you can tell us when information has changed, then, and tell us what that change is, we don't have to ask you, just push it to us. And it actually became part of something that they took out and offered to their other larger partners. So it was, it was kind of fun to see how our growth negatively impacted them, but the solution was one, we had to read that some of our code, but two, we actually uh, established a partnership. So I like Carlos' idea of who are the long-term partners that you can create. And we solved this uh, problem together, and you know, our CTO and their CTO, and I was part of that. How can we actually figure out how to solve the technical problems so that neither one of our core customer bases would have to suffer. So accidentally, you added value to one of your partners or the platform you were running on, right? Did you have any other of these occasions or any other of these things happening in previous ventures or other companies you've worked with? Oh, what are some examples? So uh, I spent five years at Technorati. Technorati was a blog search engine. So it was 2004 to 2009. Uh, when I started, there were 10 people uh, at the company. I, had been a senior director of engineering at Excite, and I came to, and then I was at Postini, the email anti-spam, anti-virus filtering company, and I became a database administrator. So here I was, I've been a vice president of engineering, a 
general manager, and it's like, okay, pilot, they want to solve really cool problems. And it really seemed like what uh, Technorati was doing was really cool. And they had over 100 MySQL databases keeping track of everything that was happening on the web right now. And over the course of about the next three years, we converted everything from MySQL to the Lucene search engine. But Lucene wasn't actually capable of handling indices of that size. Uh, we were indexing several uh, hundred million blog posts and somewhere in the neighborhood of about five to eight billion uh, trackbacks or linkbacks. So it was the largest real-time search index on the internet at the time. And we uh, actually had Doug Cutting, the creator of Lucene, uh, came and worked with us. I had two other uh, really brilliant search scientists working on this. And we modified Lucene so that you could actually create fully distributed indexes and put them on multiple machines. We had it so that we could actually index up to four years of data with sub-second response times against these billions and billions of documents. And all of the research and the work that we did on that Doug was then able to work with the first the solar community, and now everything that's available in Elasticsearch is all from some of the stuff that we did over 10 years ago. So it's, it's fun to know that things that we did, even though the company failed, the technology has lived on. So for non-technical people, he was making the internet faster. That's the <laughs> um, How many people are non-technical? Non-technical. Non-technical. Oh, no, there's a fair bunch of okay. developers. That's good. Um, yeah, but it's, is that interesting? Is it too technical? Because <laughs> I can no, I can down to a different level if that's valuable. It's, it's okay. We can try to keep a, a, a balance. Actually, we wanted to. I wanted to ask because there are some people in our audience whose company is the first company they are creating, right? And we were commenting earlier on that uh, basically some people create a company without knowing whether their company is a a, a company or a product or a feature, right? Can you elaborate on this so that you know? They yeah. So. It? Um, an investor friend of mine sort of shared that and when you're looking to acquire companies you really want to understand not just in terms of the people but their vision and their opportunity is there a full-fledged company is there the potential for this to have everything that it needs or is it really just this is an interesting product but it's not really a standalone company in itself or is it actually just a feature is this something that's really interesting but it really needs to be added on to other things there's the case where the feature can become a company when that feature is something that is ubiquitous, that people can plug into everything. So all of a sudden, it's a little bit of uh, a little bit of everything, and now it's hugely valuable. But there are a lot of people, a lot of entrepreneurs who have an idea, have put something together. They think they have a long-term, full company history ahead of them, and it's actually just a product or a feature. It's not a, it's not a big thing. Postini was an interesting one in that Postini was a SaaS email filtering company, so it was a software as a service, long before SaaS was an acronym anybody used. So it was Postini from 2001 to 2004. And filtering your email doesn't seem like a particularly, it didn't seem like is that an entire company. When I started, we were processing about 5 million emails a day. And those five, of those 5 million emails a day, about 5% were spam. So not very much spam. There wasn't a lot of spam. I remember it was single de Mayo of 2002, so less than a year after I started. It, the spam rate just, something happened. And all of a sudden, we were processing <laughs> 10 million emails a day, and now 50% is spam. 
Hotmail, right? I don't know. <laughs> Nigerian people. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Free from Nigeria. Yeah. It was, He's going to send me money. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and so I was there for three years. Over three years, we went from processing 5 million emails a day, where 5% was spam, to over 500 million emails a day, where 5% was legitimate mail. <laughs> Almost everything we processed was spam. And so the change in the market actually turned this into an incredibly valuable company, where originally it was just like, well, a little bit of spam is a little bit annoying. But they were there at ahead of time, and it made a tremendous difference. We pivoted from selling to ISPs for you know, 25 cents a month for a mailbox, we'll filter spam out for you, to $25 a month for large enterprises, Fortune 100 companies. Merrill Lynch, major law firms, uh, Clorox. I mean, it was actually the exact same software that we sold for 25 cents a mailbox to the ISPs that we sold for $25 a mailbox to the enterprises. And to say it's exactly the same, we actually had to do software engineering to suppress some of the features that were available to the ISPs because the enterprises didn't want them. So we actually had to do more work by making, th by making it less featureful. And it was just, I never to understand your customer, do what your customer wants, that massive lessons learned. Also the fact that we were essentially running the exact same software for everyone, and we had orders of magnitude difference in the pricing, it was kind of interesting. Where, have you had any lesson learned or really bad experience in having built something that people didn't need? Like building something before validating it? Yeah, and so my, I, I've been writing software for a long time, I've been running systems for a very long time. Um, two things that have sort of emerged for me. First, sort of my first law, Dorian's first law of uh, development is solve a problem worth solving. And it's often that I've, I've written amazing things that I was really, really proud of, and at the end realized that wasn't a problem worth solving. Uh, you know, sort of it's the idea of you know, a better buggy whip when cars are coming out. Just, you don't really need that. Or you know, what customers want is a faster horse. It's like, no, what they actually want is a car. Uh, and there are those sorts of things where you develop a product, you, it's sort of your baby, and nobody wants to think their baby is ugly, but sometimes you have to recognize, no, my baby's really ugly. And it's not a baby, it's just a piece of junk software. <laughs> uh, the flip side, and this one's actually really hard, when you work with really talented engineers, data scientists, designers, developers, Sometimes it's the things they don't do that are the most valuable. And an example is I can write a lot of code, if statements, and make my code do lots of things, and then I can test it, and then some, I have to add new features, and I have to write new code, and then I have to test that, and then I can't work on it, and someone else has to work on the code. And often the person who has to come back and look at this code and say this code is a terrible mess, what on earth was the person who wrote this book thinking, like, well, that was me six months ago, I should have left some comments. But I find that it's easier if you can focus on configuration-driven systems. So write code that processes configuration files so that when you need to add new functionality, as long as it's not completely new, you can introduce new concepts in configuration, and all of a sudden you haven't changed any software. You haven't changed the software, you don't really have to retest it. It also means that to upgrade the system, you just have to push a text file out. So a lesson I learned there uh, at Technorati 
we had our search backend, we had a database backend, we had the Technorati top 100 blogs, we had content that we were hosting, and there were about five or six different complex backends. And the homepage of the site talked to all of them. And if one of those components went down, the entire website went down. We didn't really use defensive programming, so one bad thing ruined everything. And I realized if I just wrapped every feature in a simple check, is this feature available? Yes or no? And I put that in a config file. So is search available? Yes or no? If search isn't available, don't show search. Don't talk to search. Just don't worry about it. If it's down, that's okay. If it's down for maintenance, whatever. I don't have to worry about it. This, the home page just says, I'm not going to show the search box. Maybe it'll display a little message that says, hey, we're sorry, search isn't available right now. But that ability to simply turn things on and off by pushing a text file out meant we could uh, move things, break things, do all kinds of stuff, and our users didn't suffer. And I, we called it uh, BRB. Uh, originally, it was Be Right Back. Because it was like, oops, we gotta put up a message, we broke something, sorry. And then it became the big red button. It's like, turn it off, it's okay. And so that, again, kind of defensive programming and externalizing the fact that something is or isn't available changed the way we developed the site. And the other thing that that ta taught us was, what do you do when something you think is always there isn't there? How can you think about that from a design point of view? user experience point of view, when you're laying out that page or on your mobile phone, what happens when that thing isn't there? Do you put it in an empty box? Does it collapse? I was talking with the CTO of Amazon a few years back, and he said to load the Amazon homepage talks to over 750 distinct services. And all of those services have a contract that says, we are going to return our result in less than 40 milliseconds. And if we don't respond in less than 40 milliseconds, throw, throw us away, don't count us. And so they have this very dynamic ability to create what seem to be the same experience every time you go, but I'll bet if you check, sometimes your order status isn't gonna be there, some particular product or merchandising element isn't gonna be there. So they learned the same lesson that just took me a long time to learn. But I think those sorts of things. So the one is solving problems that need to be solved are sometimes the ones that you can solve by externalizing it. And you've actually solved a ton of other problems because now nobody has to write the code, test the code, you don't have to push code out to the servers. But the person who thinks of doing those things doesn't get credit for having done it because they didn't write any more code. They didn't do any more check-ins. Nobody had to work on it. It got really easy. That sort of takes the last piece of, I believe, and this is one of the things that we did at Zynga, that worked really well for us when we did it well. Those of us who were there earlier were essentially working as fast as we could to replace ourselves. We wanted to become obsolete in less than six months so that whatever came next, whatever big challenge the company had, we would be available to go fix it. And that, that meant either, this is sort of in order of priority, the first one, whatever you do, whether you're a designer, an artist, uh, an engineer, a database person, if you can make it so nobody else ever has to do it again, make it obsolete, that's the best. Because then it doesn't have to be done at all. If you can make it so that a computer can do it, like automated testing or other, other frameworks where a computer can do it, that's the second best. If you can train somebody else to do it, so you don't have to do it, that's the third best. Finally, it's 
they're still doing it, you're failing. You haven't done it. If you're looking at three people today and you're going to be 30 people in a year, you have to figure out how you replace yourself. How you get, stop doing the things that only you can do. As an engineer, I, I have a very bad habit of getting things to 90%. And that last 10% is like, I just don't feel like it. That's really easy. I'll just run that script every day. Well, guess what? Yeah, there's a day you forget. There's a day where, oh, I'm at home and I actually, my internet isn't working. And that thing that has to get done today, there's nobody to do it. I think you just should automate or train somebody else to do that one thing. If I have 10 things and I've done all of them to 90% and they're all equal, all of a sudden I don't have time to do anything else. So by finishing the thread, sort of taking that piece all the way through, it's either not necessary anymore, it's automated and somebody else can do it, you've just scaled yourself. And hopefully you as entrepreneurs are some of, if not the most valuable people at your company. So make yourself unnecessary in whatever you're doing today, make somebody else able to do that, and then you can do the next thing that has to be done. That's a really good and thoughtful answer. I actually wanted to move on to Hiring, hiring engineers, right? A lot of people here in the audience are like, yeah, I need to hire a co-founder, developer, front-end or UX, whatever. We've got a shortage of these people in Barcelona or in the rest of the world, per se, right? There's a lot of competition, but in Barcelona, strictly, wanna, I want to cover these. What are the things you have learned that have helped you hire so many people on the tech side? Sort of two completely different experiences. So I mentioned Postini, three years, five million emails to 500 million emails. Uh, I joined Postini through an acquisition of a small company. There were three people that were acquired. Postini was 30 people uh, after that acquisition. Three years later, Postini was 300 people. The engineering team I joined was 10 people, the three of us making it a team of 10. Three years later, it was a team of 15. So the company grew from 30 to 300. The engineering team only grew from 10 to 15. We spent a lot of time making sure that people we hired were being hired to do something we absolutely needed, but that they could do more than one thing that had to be adaptable, because we didn't know what our future was going to look like. Nobody had ever done what we were doing, so nobody had scaled things to the level we had. We had, we had a very specific way of uh, releasing our software in a large distributed server farm. We had to set up full replication of everything between two different data centers, which was something that at that point not a lot of people had done. And we needed really, really smart people. So we took our time. Because we took so much time to find the right people, we also made sure we kept the people we had really happy. Because we didn't want to lose them because then it takes too long to bring them in. So that was a lesson of working with a very small team of really brilliant people. And if you're going to bring somebody into that team, they have to be compatible. So they didn't necessarily interview with everyone on the team, but we made sure that they interviewed with five or six people just from a compatibility point of view, not just understanding, well, do you know how to do this? Or you fluent C, tell me about memory allocation, whatever it might be, you have to actually be a good fit for the team. At Zynga, it's kind of the opposite. Uh, and they're still around, it's still a two and a half billion dollar company, they're, they're doing quite well, but I think there were a lot of mistakes that were made particularly around hiring. And if you think about it, we went from 280 people to 3,800 people. We were literally onboarding 100 new employees a week. Uh, I would walk in, and I was on the first floor of the building, and IT had the walk-up desk there, and there would be 100 backpacks all lined up with the new laptops, and everyone was personalized and customized. 
IT group was just a machine. They could bring people in and have them productive day one. That part was really amazing. The downside was we were basically just filling seats. Uh, we had an interview process. It mattered that people could, you know, spell JavaScript. Uh, but <laughs> that was, sometimes that was about, that's about all they had to do. And it did a bunch of things. We thought we were hiring a bunch of people that uh, were engineers. So that they, you know, engineers, engineering and architecture, when you build buildings, when you build bridges, you don't just bring a developer in to do that. You need an engineer, somebody that actually understands the physics. Because otherwise people die. Buildings collapse, bridges fall over. <laughs> On the internet, at least in what we're doing, social games, nobody dies. But we brought in developers. They really didn't have that sense of, how's my code going to last for the long term? So what's the equivalent of a bridge failure in your software? I don't know, I'm just writing code. The code I write, the faster I write that code, the more I get paid, the faster the stock goes up, it's gonna be awesome. But they don't think defensively, they don't code defensively. And then there are more of them than the actual engineers. And the product managers are like, I just need a bunch of developers, give me five more. And they write terrible code. And it breaks, and then because it's Facebook and the web, it's like, oh, just push hot fixes. We would do releases, and sometimes we would push five to ten hot fixes. Like, that's broken. It's like over the next two months, you just broke the game, so you shove another release out, you break that, and you break this. Like, it's terrible. It's not good for your customers, it's not good for your developers, it's not good for your reputation. I just think it's the wrong way to do it. I'm you can't always just find the perfect people. You do have to think through how many people do I need, how can I bring them on board, but we diluted the culture of the company. Those 280 people that we had mostly understood the culture. They understood the mission. They knew why we were there. We were really excited about it. Two orders of magnitude later, of you know, we, we brought in you know, almost 37 or 3,500 people. It just disappeared. Uh, the magic was kind of lost. A lot of those people just came in because we were pre-IPO and they just wanted to get in on it before we went public. And it just, it was sad to watch really, really talented people leave because they just didn't want to work with these people that we could pay the same amount as them, but they were kind of dumbass. Uh, it really wasn't, it, it was a, a terrible thing to see. Uh, we did do some really interesting things. One thing that we did was we took, I think, four or five of our best interviewers Ask them, what are the things that you're looking for? How can we turn that into essentially a systematic fit for each person? So we actually came up with five interview categories. So, you know, sort of software, basic software skills, uh, algorithms and data structures, uh, but then uh, personal fit. Are you, can you talk to people and not make them yell at you? Or are you a decent person? Um, I can't remember what the other two were, but we had a series of questions for each of these. And then we tried as hard as possible for a single role in a team, if there are going to be 12 people in interview for it, make sure the same five people are assigned those same five roles so you get consistency in feedback so it starts to mean something. Because some people will say, well, on a scale of one to five, this person's a three and a half. Someone else will say, oh, I think they're a four and a half. This person always gives people really high scores. This person is just really hard on them. So you need to normalize and understand if different people are interviewing for that position all the time, you really don't know. It's kind of crapshoot. So I would say if you can structure your interviewing in a way that makes it clear, these are the questions that this person is going to answer, uh, these are the, or ask, these are the questions this kind of person is going to ask, and you make sure that the same people are talking to 
the, the candidates for a single position. It worked, and that part worked really well. We also, uh, at one point, took a core part of our interview team and sent them to Russia, uh, where we uh, interviewed with about 150 candidates, because we just couldn't find candidates in uh, Silicon Valley anymore. I would say that it was an experiment. Uh, it probably wasn't that successful. I think out of the 150 candidates, when we phone screened and pre-screened, we ended up uh, bringing six to the United States, so not a, not a great return. Uh, but it, it taught us to really think outside. You guys are a lot closer to Russia. You have a lot of other uh, really talented people in a lot of different countries. So you might be able to uh, either go there or bring people here. Uh, I would definitely look outside of just Barcelona. I think it's going to be helpful. I think the city itself is really starting to attract people from a lot of different countries and use that network. Hey, do you know other people? Do you know somebody who knows somebody? Uh, in Berlin, we were talking to a woman from Croatia. She'd also spent 15 years in Sweden. She's having a hard time hiring a CTO. I said, well, you know a lot of people in Croatia. It's like, yeah, but you know, it's like, well, ask them. Maybe they know somebody. Maybe there's somebody there that wants to work in Berlin. So again, use your network. Uh, the best hires we ever had were always referrals. Whenever we tried to use agencies or uh, we any of those sorts of things. Just somebody else has worked with them before and they want to work with them again. That's really valuable. And I think at your stage, probably not the same thing. Something that we had to do to really try to grow uh, and add that many people is we built what's called a university recruiting program. So we started sending our recruiters out to the top universities in the United States and we would get to know, they would get to know the professors, they would understand the curriculum, and then they would have a, a job fair day where the students would get together, usually the seniors, and they would talk to Facebook and Twitter and Google and Zynga, and they would have a chance to meet some real people, work there, learn what it was, and then we could bring them out if we liked them and hire that way. We knew these were people that were uh, very smart because of the programs they were part of, but we knew they didn't really have any prior business experience. Uh, some of them would have a little bit, they'd done internships or things of that sort. We knew we would have to train them. So we made sure that when they got onto their game teams, they had a mentor. So it was really important if you're going to bring somebody in who's never done this before, they have a chance to work with somebody, somebody they can go to and ask questions. That was actually a very successful program. We brought hundreds, I think we would do two batches a year, and we would bring between 40 and 100 new grads into the company. And it felt good. Uh, they seemed very appreciative. That some of them are still there doing amazing work. A lot of them took what they did and went and started other companies. So they sort of took advantage of that massive amount of learning uh, that happened at Zynga and then started new companies in Silicon Valley. That's about hiring, but how about finding a technical co-founder, right? Lots of people and also here in the audience, right? Like, I just have been here. Step. Was that? Do you want to step with the chairs? You guys have lights on the light. Oh, well. Step one, one step right. further. Is it okay with the camera? Want to be as handsome as possible. Thank you. <laughs> I wanted to ask lots of people here have got the problem finding a founder. Why? Probably because they don't want to pay them, right? But how do you actually make it so compelling as to make it, you know, interesting for them to join your crazy adventure? That's interesting. So without using I, violence. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'll just take that as an example. Zynga, as a gaming company, was organized or is organized around game studios. 
every studio has a general manager who is essentially the owner of the PL. You know, they're, they're the business owner for the whole game. And every big game has a CTO. So I was the CTO on Mafia Wars. When we had Mobile Division, I was the CTO of the Mobile Division. Uh, I was the CTO of the Shared Technology Group. So there were these different groups. And what we had to do was, if we were going to launch a new game, we wanted to make sure we had a qualified CTO on that game before we launched it. Uh, sometimes that wasn't possible, so if I had successfully replaced myself in one area, I might get promoted. That's how I actually moved from Mafia Wars to the Mobile Division. Like I made myself obsolete over here, promoted somebody that was capable of doing it so that I could be the CTO of the Mobile Division. But we had to find, essentially, technical co-founders for all these game studios, because they operated pretty autonomous. Yes, Mark Pincus, the founder, could come and tell them, your roadmap is crap, do it this way, do it that way. But for the most part, they, they own their own business. And we observed that for us in live ops, in large-scale uh, gaming, which in many cases was really just running a large internet property, we found that the, the characteristics of the heroic engineer who can you know, wake up at 4 a.m. and you know, fix anything and do all of that is awesome, but they don't necessarily make great CTOs. Because you have to actually be able to solve the problem in the here and now and anticipate the problems and implement solutions before those things come up. And often, you know, the game is down and you know, you're losing a million dollars a day and you've got a whole team trying to figure out how to fix something. But while you're doing that, you also have to be thinking about how do we get here and how do we make sure this doesn't happen again tomorrow or the day after that. And that's really rare, to find the people that can do both of those things at the same time really well. For us, that was essentially the, uh, the filter we used for whether they were the university grads or people who had been in the company for only a short period of time. Who were the kinds of people that could be groomed to be a game CTO? And sometimes we put on a smaller game that didn't matter as much, uh, a game that might be in decline or something that just didn't have that size audience to see can they lead and uh, solve problems, but more importantly, prevent problems? It was really the prevention piece that mattered. And that meant they had to have the people skills. Uh, they had to be able to work with the general manager. They had to understand a little bit about the product. They ideally cared about the players. Uh, didn't always, but they often, you know, as the CTO on a game, you are essentially a peer to the general manager. You usually work for them, but from the company's perspective, you're the person who has to say, enough, we're, we're shipping too many features, this feature is too risky, this is gonna break things. You have to defend the players, you have to defend your engineering team, and ultimately you have to defend the, the bottom line. And everybody else is getting pressure for revenue, 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 revenue. I think it's very much a revenue-driven company. But you have to have enough to be able to say no. And if you don't have that, uh, gravitas as a person, you, I don't think you will succeed as a technical co-founder. If you don't have the ability to understand the business, care about the community, or care about the customer, I just don't think that's the person you want. Uh, you can have somebody who's brilliant. I've worked with really brilliant engineers, and I would never have them as a co-founder. If you were to create a company today and say you are the CEO, how would you convince somebody from the audience to be the CTO without paying you? Let's be more because <laughs> you didn't answer my question. Uh, Let's say Pablo. Pablo's an awesome engineer. Okay. And, uh, 
I want people to be insane. <laughs> I don't know what our company is. Is a drug or a thing? Yeah, exactly. Let's say it's a company that's it's Tinder for dogs. Tinder for dogs? Yes. I, I, I actually heard of it. I will answer your question. Great. Uh, a friend of mine is talking to a lot of uh, entrepreneurs, and these two Pakistani entrepreneurs who are moving to Silicon Valley have a company called Boomer, and it's essentially Tinder for cows. <laughs> but in, in Pakistan, in India, in a, a lot of areas, it's IoT for cows, so you have a little thing that tracks the cows, it keeps track of where they are, it's Fitbit for cows, it keeps track of the exercise, and they've now correlated a lot of this data through data science machine learning, where there's a number of kilometers per day that a cow needs to exceed, and if it does, it produces 30% more uh, milk. So it's really, really interesting. These things are really, really cheap, so sorry. Boomer. <laughs> What are we doing? We're doing. Oh, uh, yeah, you're talking Tinder for Tinder for dogs. For cows. So, <laughs> Tinder for cows. Yeah. So, I can't really pitch Tinder for cows. Sorry. <laughs> but I think that the first thing is, you know, what are you most passionate about? Are you most passionate about ideas and being able to turn those ideas into a reality? Are you passionate about solving problems? Are you passionate about writing amazing code? Uh, I think, you know, the, the cliche is, well, we want to change the world, right? It's like, that's what I wanted to do uh, for my first 15 years. And then I added, for the better. Yeah, yeah, that's it, I'm going to change the world for the better. Um, and I think it's, what is it that drives you? When I interview people, when I want to, uh, if I were looking for a co-founder, <laughs> attitude, aptitude, and passion. I, I look for all three of those things. You have to have the right attitude. You have to be able to work together. And like I said, with the CTO type, you have to be able to tell me I'm wrong. You have to be able to, not very often, please don't no. You have to be able to tell me and stand up for me and say, no, that's not how to do it. Here's the piece of information that you don't have. How can we move that part in? And then uh, together, hopefully, agree. But I think it's really important that there's a strong rapport, but you have to have a backbone. If you don't have a backbone, I don't want to work with you. If you can't stand up to me, then that's not going to work because you have to be a, a co-founder, co-owner. You have to believe in this mission uh, as much as I do. You have to have the aptitude to learn new things. Because if there's just the two of us, geez, don't make me do the design, because I'm terrible at that. I can write APIs, I'll build message bots. And it's like, the other one is, who do you know? What are the kinds of people that you can bring in later? Because right now I can't pay you. But I believe in you. You seem super passionate about the idea. I think we have a good rapport. And you're going to tell me when my ideas stink. That's, that's a really important uh, attribute. But you also have to have a network. And what are we going to do to get this thing off the ground? Um, I would probably try a few uh, experiential, like you know, tell me about a, a situation where uh, you thought you were doing one thing for one reason, it turned out you were doing it for all the wrong reasons, uh, and see how you think about that. But that doesn't necessarily make you want to work with me. But I would want you to see how I work. These are things I've done, this is how I've done things. Is that interesting to you? It seems very hypothetical. I have a hard time answering the question. But that's good, that's good. I appreciate your flexibility. <laughs> and I, I wanted to perform this real test because normally we don't get this kind of answer. And actually, we don't have those many CTOs I interview, right? And so uh, a lot of people are asking, like, hey, when are, when are you going to interview any other CTO? Because we want to see the, the, the deck part, right? The deck part. And actually, now I wanted to help the developers in the room. What is the most effective way for a developer 
to tell the C the CEO, for instance, like, no, these ideas, shit, like, I'm not going to implement it. It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> it will break everything. There's not the way to do it because they get this on a daily basis. Liz and I have worked together at two different companies, and uh, so I, I will answer the question, but I'm answering a different question, but I want to answer that. <laughs> um, the other part of that question, the other side of that question is, how do CEOs or product managers keep engineers from doing the things they want to do and shipping the things they want to work on? Uh, there's, that's an interesting question, and I am that engineer. Uh, I love, it's like, I'm just going to build it this weekend, because I have root, and I'm going to ship it on Monday. I've done that to Liz multiple times. She was the product manager. Um, in terms of standing up to CTOs, or standing up to CEOs or general managers or, or others, my approach is data. The more data you have, uh, the data fundamentally is just that. I then have to add my context and experience to that to create a story that turns that data into information. And from that information, I can hopefully get somebody to uh, believe me this is a better way to do it, or that's something you shouldn't do. When I don't have the data, I will, usually, if I think somebody is wrong, I just use the scientific method. Formulate a hypothesis. I think, I think this is how it should be. And if these things are true, and I, before I run the experiment, I try to think of two or three things that I can measure, and I set a threshold that says, if this theory is true, this, this, and this will be true. I can measure them, and I'll know. That way, I can't con myself later and say, well, it needed to be fast. Yeah, I think this is kind of fast. No, it's like, no, pages need to load in under you know, 800 milliseconds or something very precise and measurable. So now I want to construct a small experiment. I don't need a lot of investment. It might be something I can do a day or a week. If it's bigger, it might be a month, but that's usually for larger companies. Now I only need to get the buy-in from somebody to listen long enough for me to be able to conduct an experiment. Hopefully that experiment is lightweight and can be done with very little resources and you move things forward after that. But I want to be the first one to recognize that my hypothesis is false. So if I don't have the data, I want to gather the data. And in gathering the data, I have to also realize I have to analyze that data and turn it into information. Because data in and of itself isn't that interesting. You need to turn it into information and from that insights. And with that, I find that people will often uh, listen and change. Um, there were a number of controversial decisions that I made uh, as the CIO at Zynga. Uh, one of them was we had we used Vertigo, which is a large uh, columnar relational data store. We had petabytes of analytics data in it. Uh, it was the largest such thing on the planet. We had two of them because we replicated the data. Every, it, it, it cost a ton of money. It cost a bunch of money to run. We taught all of our product managers SQL. So like they would go to one week of SQL boot camp. So that if there wasn't a canned report, they were expected to write the SQL themselves. We had massive amounts of data. We had all of these really cheap old servers of all kinds of types in our data center. And somebody wanted to spend $2 million to buy an, an additional, uh, I don't know, two petabytes of storage. And I just said, no, I'm not, no, we're not doing that. He said, well, we have to do it. It's like, this problem, we just have to use it vertically to do that. I'm like, no, we're not going to do that. We have you know, 20,000 servers here with tons of disk space. Use Hadoop. Use MapReduce. Your problem does not require SQL. We 
we can put this on all of this equipment that's not even being used anymore. And it, we've already paid for it. This solution costs zero. Your solution costs $2 million and is going to take three months. So it's usually you know, that kind of data. CEOs and CFOs go, yeah, I like the zero dollar option. <laughs> the technical people said, ah, but now I've got to learn Hadoop. It's like, I can get you 15 engineers at Zynga today that either know it or want to learn it. So that's not a problem. That, like, all these other people, they can keep doing the sequel, they can keep doing that other stuff. We're going to use Hadoop and we're going to do that. And it actually turned into a, a really fantastic project for an engineer who I was mentoring and kind of grooming. Unfortunately, he took all that great stuff and left and started doing large-scale uh, Hadoop at, at another company. But he had to do what he wanted. Uh, I think that's kind of the last piece in terms of hiring and recruiting. You should feel successful when the people you have hired and groomed and mentored leave and go do amazing things. That you're working with them for a while, but ultimately, they should be able to go do amazing things after It's great when they come back and work for you again. I always love that. Uh, but it's really fun to be able to like, look out and say, oh, I groomed that person, I gave that person a, a break. I've had so many times where I've unfortunately had to let a lot of people go, but those people still want to work with me. They don't, they don't take it. They understand the business wasn't working well, but you were a good boss or you were a good leader. And yeah, I worked with that guy. But you should also realize, don't just keep people close. Let them Great, last two questions, and they're gonna be real quick, right? The first one relates to your born in California, raised in California, so obviously you're spending a ton of your time in Silicon Valley, and now you're here. You haven't been enough time in Europe, probably, to realize how we work over here, but what should we import from Silicon Valley to make more successful companies? Um, I don't know enough about the, the sort of technical and entrepreneurial culture in Barcelona. One thing that I learned from Berlin there's actually two really interesting stories, and it may just have been the people I was talking to, but one, I think Berlin is this amazing multicultural pot of art. We were there last summer, we went and saw this amazing video and VR art projects, and it was incredible. This time around, it was talking to you know, entrepreneurs and technology, and I remember talking to a small group of Germans, and I said, so what do you think? How is art and tech going to blend? And they're like, that's not what? Then just deadpan, straight, like, nope, that's not going to happen. I, I don't believe that. You're, you're from Germany, right? That seems a little German. <laughs> I think art and technology come together. I think tech is incredibly creative. I think technical minds have an artistic element to them. And I think many artists also have a sense of building and destroying things. And I think that's how you create. You have to build things up and tear them down and try again. Uh, the other cultural aspect of Germany was very reticent, very hesitant to admit or discuss failure. So I would think the most important thing to import from Silicon Valley is the ability to embrace mistakes, uh, to embrace the learnings from them, always be what, what we call a student of the market. Study the competition, understand what they're doing, understand what they're doing better than you are, internalize it, test it, so that idea of testing things, well, often when you test things, they break, they fail, they don't work. But be ready to embrace it. Uh, when I, my job went from being the CTO of Mafia Wars, where we had scaled it up from, I think, 3 million players a day to 7.5 million players a day, from about 500 million transactions a day to about 4 billion transactions a day. And 
we made a lot of mistakes. We broke Facebook, we, we broke other social network sites, and we learned how to write better code. I became the CTO of the Shared Technology Group, and our job was to clean up the mistakes from everybody else so that we could actually then pass on a set of code that the new game teams could use and not make the same mistakes we did. It's like, go make new mistakes, and then tell us about them, and then we'll fix it, and we'll roll it out. And I would say just that willingness and eagerness to keep learning, and just, yeah, you're going to make mistakes. Everybody makes mistakes. Learn from them. Don't make the same mistake twice. The last question. Everybody has got a useless superpower. Something you do exceptionally well, but you cannot use it for anything. What is yours? Useless. Useless. Something you do exceptionally well every day. <laughs> Uh, I'm really, really good at sleeping in. Okay, that's a good piece of surprise. Big applause. We are Mars-based, an all-remote consultancy from Barcelona, specializing in web and mobile development. We help all kinds of companies, from startups to big corporations, to conceptualize, design, and develop solutions for their business using technology. And now, how can we help you?